start. This Heritage Radio Network program is sponsored by Open Table. For more information, visit opentable.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, every Tuesday, you know, like 12-ish, 12.45, 12.50, depends on whether we have a show coming after kicking us out or, you know, something else to do, you know how it is. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128, that's 718-497-2128, joined in the studio as usual with Nastasia of the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Doing all right? Yeah. Yeah, we got Jackie Molecules. Jack in the, in the engineering booth. How you doing, Jack? I'm good. What's up with the eye patch, man? <laughs> all right. All right. We'll talk about the eye patch in a minute. All right. I'm doing Pirate Dave right now. Ah. And, and we're, jo- we're joined by, we'll use like political terminology, Engineer Joe. We got Engineer Joe in the uh, in the booth today. How you doing, Joe? Good afternoon. So, uh, if you should, and by the way, when I say engineer, I don't mean like rocket engineer or automobile engineer, like uh, kitchen equipment engineer. So, if you guys have any questions about, for instance. Why does my X, Y, and Z do X, Y, and Z? You can call and ask Joe, and maybe he can tell you why X, Y, and Z does X, Y, and Z. Right? I hope so. Yeah. All right. Uh, should uh, provide an interesting perspective here on the program. Uh, so, why am I wearing an eye patch? This is an excellent question. So, it turns out that... Uh, so, I am the... Uh, I, don't, I do not have a detached retina. That is not what happened. Let's just... Let's start with that. Let's start with I do not have a detached retina. Yeah. However, uh, a... You know, mid forties. You know, uh, white dude who uh, was born like very nearsighted. Like I was, you know, I have the la- I had the laser surgery, so I can see. Well, could see normally, right? Uh, like we are prime candidates. Like white male, like mid age, uh, nearsighted folk, <clears throat> prime suspects for a retinal detachment. So on Sunday, I start getting like a floater, right? You know, like you know what I'm saying, like a floater in your eye, like. Uh, but usually floaters, they look kind of like gray. You know what I mean? So I didn't, uh, I didn't think much of it. It was bigger than normal. I was like, this sucks. You know what I mean? And then I did uh, you know, my, my daily, I hate to even say these words, workout routine. Oh, right? Yeah, I know. It's terrible. It's awful. I don't even want to think about it. Right? I detest, I detest it. Anyways, uh, so I did that. And then like all of a sudden, my... It looked like the beginning of a James Bond, like, movie 
situation, like, you know, some golden eye crap, like, just, like, swirls of, like, black, like, galaxies and stars of dust and, like, blackness and, like, big inky swirls. You know how, like, when someone gets shot in the James Bond thing and all the blood pours out of them, Mm -hmm. like, ink and shadow effect? Mm -hmm. Like, this is what my vision was like in my eye. So I'm like, meh, meh. So I go online, and they're like, yeah, you have floaters. I'm like, well, it seems worse than a floater. They're like, if it's flashing, if you have flashing lights, this is when you know you're getting a detached retina. Or if, like, a portion of your vision just literally goes blank, like blank. Not like looking through a James Bond film, but, like, blank. Detached retina. So I'm like, nah, not a big deal. So at dinner, because I cooked dinner that night, which, by the way, we could talk about dinner. I, like, uh, I have my new favorite go-to quick meal. We can talk about that in a minute. Anyways, so, like, I tell the people what at dinner. Cliffhanger, man. Yeah, I tell the people at dinner. I'm like, hey, uh, so... Um, I can't really read, and it's hard for me to concentrate when I'm slicing, and uh, I'm sorry if I seem a little distracted, but, like, you know, I have a, a James Bond movie going in my right eye. And they're like, what the, what's wrong with you? And so then, like, I called my mom, and my mom's like, what's wrong with you? You could be having an attached retina. I was like, the internet tells me no, mom. She's like, you idiot, 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 idiot. So I had to go to see a doctor. Luckily, all I did was my eye sack ripped away from the edge, tore open a blood vessel, and sprayed blood all over the inside of my eye, which you can see. But, um... Anyways, so apparently I am at an increased risk for retinal detachment over the next two weeks. So please, nobody who sees me on the street, please don't punch me in the right side of the head. You know what I mean? Like, if you see me on the street, try to avoid your, your, your primary urge, which will be to punch me in the right side it's of the gonna head. It's going to be tough, man. I know. Like, go for a kidney blow. Something that's not going to send too much shock to the head. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, maybe if you hit me in the kidney, maybe I could get some match bleeding. Bleeding down low, bleeding up high. God. Could be good. You know what I mean? So anyways, so yeah, so uh, it's taking me out of uh, strenuous activity for the next uh, couple of weeks. But, oh, and I have to wear, I don't have to wear an eye patch. In fact, my doctor says that I should wear the eye patch as little as possible because uh, he wants me to be looking through the eye in case something terrible happens so I can rush to the hospital and they can, like, glue all the stuff back together should it start coming apart like a poorly glued model airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, but it's impossible for me to read, so there's no way I can do uh, – there's no way I can do the radio show without the eye patch. Right. I didn't bring the cowboy hat. Yesterday I had the cowboy hat and the eye patch, and I have to say – I have never in my life gotten such looks of respect on the street as I did when I was walking around with, like, a vest, like, you know, like a puffy vest, like my, you know, my brown cowboy hat and an eye patch. People are like, I don't, I don't know, but I don't want to, I'm not going to, I don't know, but I'm just not going to, mm-hmm. I'm not going to mess with this one. Mm-hmm. This one, no, no. You know what I mean? You know what I mean, Jack? Yeah. It's a great look. Yeah. You like the eye patch? What's and the go-to quick meal, though? Oh yeah, go to quick meal. So I do have a caller. We'll we'll stay. Pa- I told them to stay patient. Well, wait okay. a minute. Uh, uh, when we do the caller, we'll okay. deal with the caller's problem, and then we'll talk about some go to quick meal. All okay. right, caller, you're on the air. Uh, hey uh, guys, this is Coleman from uh, from Brooklyn. How's it going? Doing all right. How you doing? Not bad. Thanks. Um, uh, two questions. First of all, I'm going to Vancouver this coming weekend. I want to see if you have any uh, restaurant recommendations up there. Mm, you know what? You know what that's for? That's for the chat room. I haven't been to Vancouver in, I think, like four years. And I went with, uh, uh, you know, the food writer out there, Fong. It was good, but I can't remember. I went to, like, whatever the top-rated sushi restaurant was in Vancouver, and it was quite good. But I don't remember the name of it. You know what I mean? And so much has happened in Vancouver over the past... over the past couple of years, I would hesitate even to... Have you been there recently? Did no. you go there, Styles, when you went to Seattle and Portland? No. No? Mm-mm. Joe, you been to Vancouver recently? In the mid-90s. That's even earlier. I was there, too, in the mid-90s. It was a crazy time. That's when all of Hong Kong was buying up Vancouver. When the, Yeah. Yeah. Interesting time. Yes. Uh, but no... Uh, Jack, are you going to put that out to the uh, chat room? 
Yeah, I will. All right. Put the, uh, so I'm sorry that I don't have anything specific, but we'll get the chat room working on it, and you can, uh, you know, get the Cooking Issues crew weighing in on that. Do you have any other questions that maybe I know yeah, the answer? Yeah, one other one. I have a, a friend whose birthday is coming up who just turned vegetarian. Oh. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I don't approve of that, but it's a friend. Uh, and I want to see if you have any good vegetarian cookbooks that you actually liked and thought would be worth uh, getting as a present. Yeah, sure. You need to get a Michael Natkin's Herb of Voracious. Boom. Which one again? Michael Natkin's Herb of Voracious. Okay. Herb of Voracious. Uh, Michael Natkin um, does work with uh, Chef Steps. And uh, even Nastasia, hater of vegans everywhere. Good book. Thinks it's a good book, right? You just heard Nastasia. Say it again. Good book. See, you heard Nastasia Lopez actually praising something on air, if you can believe that. Nastasia Lopez. I'm proud to have caused that. Yeah, yeah. Nastasia Lopez has actually cooked recipes out of this book, right? That's true. That, Whoa. It, like, yeah, that's crazy endorsement. Now, if I might go forward, uh, and Nastasia is going to disagree with me here, uh, I would go purchase. Um, any one of the number of excellent Indian vegetarian uh, cookbooks out there. The one that I happen to own is extremely old, and so it doesn't uh, – I mean, I don't even know whether it's current. It's not really current anymore, but I have the old Yamuna Devi one. But you know, anyone who's become vegetarian better get themselves very, very acquainted with Indian food. That's my go-to. Yeah, yeah. My, my girlfriend's vegetarian, so I cook a lot of Indian at home. Yeah, and let me say this. Uh, I wouldn't worry so much about – uh, well, you know, you're not the vegetarian. You don't care. But like, the point is, is that is that like a lot of times I think when someone, I mean, the great thing about Indian uh, cooking, vegetarian cooking, is that they have so many centuries of practice at doing this properly in a very kind of uh, integrated and a holistic way. So it's not just trying to glue the vegetarian precepts onto like some other form of eating. So it's really a good right. place to start. But uh, I think I find that a lot of people uh, when they start out get rather daunted because of the spice mixtures and uh you know all all of the all of these other things and uh i think that i don't know how kind of creative your friend is but um a lot of the techniques that are used uh in indian cooking or the basic flavor combinations even without the huge mix of spices in the masalas and whatnot are extremely useful so you know uh like you know if you're making like a, a like you know mint coconut Chutney can be really, really complicated, or it can literally be, I'm going to throw a coconut with some mint and, uh, and coriander and, and ginger and some spice, uh, you know, and a couple nuts in a blender and go with some water and oil and bang. You know what I mean? Like super fresh. Yeah, so I, I yeah, think yeah. like some willingness to not necessarily adhere to the letter of what's going on in those cookbooks is very helpful um, because you're not shooting for authentic. You're shooting for delicious, and, right? And things can be authentic and delicious, or they can be uh, your own creation and delicious, you know? You got that right. So that's, those are my suggestions. Cool. All right. Hey, thanks so much. Hey, no problem. Hey, Jack, did we get anyone uh, weighing in in Vancouver yet? No, but I just texted you and Stas. We have a first-time chatter here. Uh, Jay Heaton just made a Enemies of Quality t-shirt design. Wow. You got to look at it. I just texted it to you and Stas. Do you see it? Uh, I'm looking through my one, my one as, uh, oh, as Bob what? Dylan would say, my one dying eye. Oh, my God. For, for those of you that listen to the hurricane. Do people still talk about that, about the hurricane? About Bob Dylan? No, about the song. No, the hur- well, anyway. 
Wow, tomatoes in the fridge. We've got to send this to Daniel Gritzer and see what Dan- Daniel Gritzer famously said that I was the enemy of truth by saying Ooh. that putting uh, uh, tomatoes in the fridge. He can go back. We can, look, we can uh, reference whatever uh, episode that was where Daniel was actually on. Yep. But he said, you know, I famously, not famously for me, uh, often say, rather, that uh, putting tomatoes in the fridge makes you the enemy of quality because, as we all know, uh, tomatoes turn mealy when they're stored in the, in the fridge for a long time. It's, it's m- more severe of a problem in tomatoes that have large uh, amounts of flesh. Right. When I say flesh, I mean the actual like granular part of the flesh, as opposed to just seeds and water, like a cherry tomato has. Uh, did I ever tell you guys how bitter cherry tomato skins are? Mm-mm. We'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Anyway, so I said it was like a super enemy of quality situation. Um. Because it's true, uh, and so I tend to leave my tomatoes on the counter, and this is especially true when I shop for very high-end tomatoes in uh, August at the farmer's market. And Daniel said to me, look it, uh, when you take especially not such a great tomato or a tomato that's ripe and you leave it on the counter, it loses, uh, it loses a lot of its qualities and becomes not good compared to one that's stored in a fridge for a day or two and then removed and allowed to come up to temperature. And he had a lot of things. And I think that's uh, maybe correct except for when I buy – when I buy garbage tomatoes, I don't really care because they're garbage. You know what I mean? Um, when I buy like a really good tomato – uh, I always buy them – I buy ones I'm going to eat today, and they're ready. I buy ones I'm going to eat tomorrow, and they have like a day left, and I turn them upside down. In other words, the stem side down because the stem side is the firmest side of the tomatoes. Tomatoes ripen from the part that's furthest away from the plant towards the stem. So the stem is the, the stem end is the, mo- is the strongest part of the tomato, so it's not going to break when you store it that way. It usually has a natural resting point, and you won't burst the skin, and I let them sit out uh, you know, on a cool counter, or it, if I'm in a snooty mood, my wine storage container. That Stas just made fun of me, because just because I was having to give in as a gift like, a, like a, one of those little wine-holding refrigerators, now Anastasia oh, thinks that I walk around with a monocle. I don't. I walk around with an eye patch. Duh. Boom. And uh, boom, Stas. So there goes you and your uh, hopes of seeing me as the planter's peanut man. Um, wine, one of those wine, that's like such a classic example of a gift somebody would give. Right? Yeah. Right? And yeah. then you're like, I guess I'll, I'll use it. Yeah, but you know what it's really good for, Jack? Tomatoes. Yeah, clearly. You know what else? Wine. You know what else? Chocolate. Oh, yeah. Chocolate. That good for sense. chocolate. That's yeah. good. Uh, and so you know what it's holding now? Box after box of box wine. Because everyone knows that's how I rock it now, the box wines. And the, have, you, have you been converted to box wines yet, Stas? No. No? Anyway, so Daniel is basically saying that uh, if I say that you're an enemy of quality for putting a uh, tomato in the fridge, I'm being too simplistic and not taking into account the way that the majority of people uh, consume tomatoes here in the good old U.S. of A. And you know what? He's probably right. So what's your go-to quick meal? Go-to quick meal. Uh, It's – so I forget – I forget how the situation started. I think it was because Peter Kim from the Museum of Food and Drink said something about uh, Trinidad food, and I somehow went into some rabbit hole on Trinidad or something, and I saw this dish for um, yam. Now, you know yams aren't yams. You know in America, when we say yam, we really mean sweet potato. Did you know that, Jack? I suspected as much. Yeah. So the sweet potato is not a yam. 
it is an entirely different species. Like what we call yam, I forget the name of the actual uh, thing, but it's like it's like a something. It's like a batata ipanema. Yeah, like I this. ran into this problem when a recipe called for sweet potatoes and yams, and I was like, wait, what? Yeah, but most uh, like ninety nine point nine percent of Americans, when they say yam, what they mean is a different color of sweet potato. Right, so they're still talking about two different varieties of the same exact plant, neither of which is a yam. Right, a yam is an entirely different tuber that is neither a potato nor a sweet potato, and it's, there's a variety of them yams. Anyway, the particular one I was using is called name. Anyway, so it was a mixture of. Are you familiar with the uh, French uh, uh, dish brandade? Have I talked about this dish on the? So you know brandade. You know brandad? Anyone brandad? Anyone brandad? So it's like mashed potatoes and like shredded salt uh, cod. Yeah. And yeah, like with like good. butter like butter and cream. Finished typically with walnut oil. Uh, you know, I think it's Basque or some crap. You know, it's right on the border. One of those things is right on the border. So anyway, so I saw this like smashed yam and salt fish recipe with like peppers and onions. I was like, bang. So I don't, ma- I don't do it traditional. I do like, like a huge bunch of uh, sautéed tomatoes, a huge bunch of sautéed red and green. Cause, sorry, I can't help myself. I can't just have green peppers. It's, you know, whatever. Uh, and the, oh, it's super simple. You just uh, do that. Oh, and the, the trick with this, you know how any of you guys do Catholic, uh, any of you guys do Catholic uh, Christmas Eve? No. What the hell? Anyone? Catholic Christmas Eve? I mean, I have. You have. Good. So, what do you? So, what do you eat on a cl- on a classic uh, Italian classic uh, Catholic uh, Christmas Eve? Fish. Right. So you're eating fish. So one of the great fishes you eat, of course, is bacala. Right. So bacala is the is the salt cod. It's reconstituted now. When you're eating Italian Christmas Eve dinner, the problem with the bacala in this situation is you have to buy the nice big pieces and you have to reconstitute them over over a couple of days to get the right texture and the right taste. Uh, and ex- good uh, dried cod is quite expensive. However, for this recipe, or if you're making uh, cod fritters, do you like bacalaguitos? You like those stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're delicious. You like those, Joe, Jack, you ever yes. have these? Yeah, yeah, they're delicious, right? The advantage of these things is you can use the crappier, thin pieces of cod that aren't fit for serving on Christmas Eve but still have a lot of that flavor. So all you do is you throw uh, you throw all the cod into, into a big pot of water like you would for pasta with no salt. Duh. You take it from cold. You bring it up just below to a simmer. You let it ride for a couple minutes. Dump it. Do it once more, and the cod's ready to use with in like 10 minutes you pull it out you hack it up with a knife you throw it into the saute after you're done you uh just you know peel your yam which gets really really slippery and gross uh chop it boil it smash it up i add a boatload of butter and oil to it and i serve it with uh limes and avocados tomatoes and that's it lettuce boom done boom done fast delicious you could put any any sort of topping you could put on. It's not traditional, maybe Trinidad, but like you must have avocados and you must have lime. If you don't have those two things, you don't deserve to have uh, you know the meal. Anyway, that's my go-to now because I can I can get it on the table in under an hour, and you know it's unusual for people that haven't had it yet. So and it's cheap, super cheap. Anyway, nice. Can we take a really quick break so we can get that out of the way? Sure. Yep. Let's do it. Come right back with cooking issues. proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Open Table is home to the world's largest dining network, seating over 17 million diners every month. 
Their technology solutions help restaurants run and grow their businesses. That means providing memorable hospitality to every guest, streamlining front-of-house operations, and optimizing seating to seat more diners and drive more business. Chefs, restaurateurs, and other industry professionals can find more tips and best practices for running a successful restaurant on their blog, Open for Business at openforbusiness.opentable.com. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. All right. So, uh, on from that, did you think I sounded like a good uh, dish there, Jack? Yeah, I'm into it. Joe? Yes. It sounded great. Yeah. Very fast. Very cheap. Uh, Okay. I'm a cheap man. Did you know that? What? I'm super cheap. I like being generous with food quantities, but if I can – I feel no compunction, except when buying steak and cheese, to buy like super expensive stuff. You know wait, what I'm saying? wait, wait, just steak and cheese. Well, I'm just thinking two wow. things off the top of my head. Okay. I don't buy cheap steak. I don't buy cheap cheese. I mean, I don't buy expensive cheese explicitly, but most of the right. cheeses that I like end up costing a good deal of money. You know what I mean? So yeah. in, what I tend to do is I try to find the highest quality supplier of the cheese at a reasonable price, which means I end up eating a lot of Italian cheese here in New York because Ooh, yeah. I, I go to DiPaolo's, because DiPaolo's is like the greatest Italian cheese shop. By the way, this was super depressing. I was in Milan last week, which is why we didn't do the show. And did I tell you this, Stas? Like, what I found depressing was I went to like some of the high-end markets in, uh, in, you know, in Milan, and there was nothing that I saw that I was like... I need to bring this home because I can't get this here in New York. And I was really depressed by that. Like, the, you know, there was stuff I couldn't bring home because it's illegal, like meats and stuff like this. But, you know, most of the cheeses, and I tried them, like, the quality difference wasn't that great. It wasn't like I was getting a lot of loss bringing it over. And maybe it's because Milan, you know, Milan isn't the heart of the super micro artigianale, blah, 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 like, you know, farmer with his cap and all this other stuff. Had some delicious um, liquors over there. But, yeah, wasn't that depressing that I couldn't find anything that I was like, oh, yeah. And it's not like I went to, like, I did also go to supermarkets while I was there because I always, when I travel, go to supermarkets to see what people's supermarkets are like. And I recommend anyone do this. Like, take a good 20 minutes out. Everyone passes a supermarket when they're in a foreign country. Go into the supermarket and see how they see how people shop. Do you like doing that or do you not like it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, weird stuff there anyway. But the point is I was just super depressed by that because almost always I can find some crap that, you know, I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. I don't know. Depressing. Uh, but I did have a lot of good risotto since, you know, Milan, good risotto. And I did have the big Milanese uh, breaded cutlet. You know what I'm talking about? You know they call it the elephant because they leave the bone on it. So do you like cutlets? Mm-hmm. Do you like do you like do you like those things, Joe? Yes, I do. They're delicious. I had an interesting risotto at a restaurant called Daniel. No relation to our Daniel here. He's an Italian Daniel. Uh, get this: licorice and lemon. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, do, are, would you be willing to try it? Licorice and lemon. Licorice and lemon. Risotto. Risotto. Delicious. Hmm. Really delicious. And Nastasia, you would have liked it. 
perfectly cooked. Nice. The best cooked. So I had a couple of, uh, of you know, well-reviewed restaurants in Milan I went to that had the risotto that was like a little bit starched out and gloopy on the outside. Mm-hmm. You hate that, right? Mm-hmm. And with, uh, with the core that's cooked all the way through, all the way through. No, you hate, not, hate, so right? Mm-hmm. Hate, hate. And where the, gra- the grains come up in big cl- clumps of mm-hmm. stuff. Ugh. Hate, right? Mm-hmm. This thing... Like, all the grains were still themselves, but they had a nice, like, you know, awesome, like, texture on the outside. Tiny core on the inside, still done, perfectly cooked. Best. Anyway. Uh, also, I went to this crazy restaurant whose name escapes me. Where, check this out, Stas. I think it's called, like, Book and Davich, uh, B- uh, Book on Davino or something like this. You go in. Did I tell you about this one? Yeah. You go in, and they just – Joe and Jack, you'll like this. They <clears> – <throat> You order nothing, which already I like. I hate making choices. I hate Same. choices. Choices are the worst. Like every day, your life, you have to make choices all the time. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Who am I going to hang out with? What bearing am I going to use in the centrifuge? Blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like choices all freaking day. And then all of a sudden, you go to a place and they're like, you know what? Crap on you. And here's what they do. They just bring like plate after plate after plate of salumi and they're just chopping it off like all different like you know like these weird ones from like Norcia that are sliced thick so you know hams all good stuff but they just open a bottle of wine bring it to you open because I think they cheat I think they reuse the bottle and refill them but that's that's not important it's very host friendly they bring the bottle of wine they pour you the two glasses because there's only two of us eating and then they just put the bottle of wine on the table with the first course no choice you don't get to choose a bottle of wine because that's not your job that's the sommelier's job that's his freaking job right Course. And it's his restaurant. There's a picture of him with his kid in the backpack in the mountains, you know, because it's very close to the Alps. Anywho, so I'm like, oh, this is kind of nice. It's kind of refreshing. You can pour yourself more. Then they come with the next plate of salumi, chaka, 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 and the next open bottle of wine, and they pour in two new glasses, and they put that freaking bottle on the table, and they don't take away the other bottle. Then wow. comes then comes the freaking pasta, and the pasta is in, uh, you know, they serve it like like old school, like... What I assume is an old school, like, 70s, like, kind of like, this is the kind of cheese, uh, not cheese literally, but, you know, cheesy thing that I, kitschy thing that I love. They had the half Parmesan bowl that they tossed, like, the uh, Italian, and they, and they serve it out of that with another freaking bottle of wine. Then comes the cheese course with another freaking bottle of wine. Then comes the uh, dessert. They brought a dessert with, like, uh, some sort of local, like, Vinsanto-style thing that wasn't Vinsanto. It was from near Milan. Then... The grappa in an open freaking bottle. So our table, with no choice, a table is just like littered with glasses. And obviously I didn't eat all the salumis. There wasn't any of that. But it was a good experience. And you know what? Some idiot walks in. I'm talking. I don't speak Italian. So the other guy's saying. Some idiot walks in and says, says, everything on TripAdvisor, it's rated on TripAdvisor. Every single thing is like, you do not choose. You do not choose. There is no choice. And by the way, there's no choice. Some guy comes in and is like, "Um, there's no uh, choices here. I kind of thought, you know, we could choose what we Ugh. wanted. And the guy was like, yeah, hey, leave. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like uh, people. What makes people think they'll make the right choice? I, there's, A, no reason why anyone should make the right choice. And if you have, like, if you are picky, you should not go to a restaurant whose whole shtick is you have no choice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, eh, whatever. Wish there were more of those here. I love the no choice. Yeah, me too. Well, that's like, you know, even places here that are no choice, it really is like marginal choice. You can walk into like a place that, you know, has like a, a like a prefix only, like, you know, three course and you can say, 
oh yes, but this and but that. Uh-huh. But this guy doesn't even tell you. There's no menu. There's no. There's no. Here's what you might have. Kind of situation. Just shows up. There's no opportunity to be like I, I don't like that. Anyway, and we, we went to the place in Greece that was like that. Stars. Mm-hmm. No choice. As uh, Jeffrey Steingarten's uh, wife Karen says, no choice, no problem. By the way, I'm going to talk about this on the air while we're here. Nastasia Lopez is the queen of uh, of not putting up with crap that she hates. Okay, it is a well known fact here at Roberta's Pizzeria, and I love Roberta's. You know that, Jack, right? Oh, yes. Right. It's a well known fact that uh, they have greens in this restaurant. How do I know this? Because they always have specials with greens, right? For the past year, Nastasia and I, every single time we sit down, every Tuesday, we're like, can we get greens on our pizza? And Stas, what's the answer? No. Yeah, no greens on the pizza. So they're like, we, like how about you just take greens and throw them on the pizza? Like, and, and what do they say? No. Right. So... Nastasia, for the past couple of weeks, has turned Roberta's Pizzeria into a BYOG restaurant. She literally goes to the store on the way to the radio program. She has to leave five minutes earlier. Picks up the uh, – what's your favorite green on pizza, Stas? Arugula. Oh, yeah. That's the right answer. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. baby arugula. Oh, yeah. With some oil. Brings it. And then we put it on our own pizza. But how crazy is that? So good. And they, they never say anything about it. They're never giving us crap about it. Yeah, but then what if like what if another table is like I want one of those? They should start stocking the freaking greens for the pizza. Hey, you know what? You Here's- know what? I should have uh, I should have the head of the pizza kitchen come in. Yeah. We should we should we should talk about this on air. Here's the thing: they could say, "Hey, I'm going to charge you six bucks," and I'd be like, "Okay." Anyway, whatever. So it's a BYOG restaurant. It's the only outside food we can bring into Roberta's is greens for our pizza. Whatever. Okay, some questions. Um, two, t- qu- uh, two quick questions for the year of starch uh, research. Uh, I've been making the flour tortilla recipe in the new Stupak Taco Cookbook written uh, with Alex Stupak and Jordana Rothman. Do you have a copy of that? No. Me neither. Eh, shows what kind of friends we are. We don't even rate a copy <laughs> of the freaking book. Hey, thanks. Of course, I'm sure we would have gotten a copy had we gone to the book launch party, yeah. but we were doing, we were doing other hey, stuff. James Beard Award nominee. Really? For the book? Yeah. Well, I hope they win. Yeah, me too. I mean, we, uh, we, not that we, I've read it yet, but I mean, I like quick them. quick aside, we, had, uh, we did panels at South By, and uh, Alex Stupak was on a panel, and he is awesome. Yeah, he's really good on panels. That guy tells it like it is. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's also really really good at demos. You ever seen him do a cooking oh, no, demo? No, I haven't. Really good, like like hardcore, like everything. Like he's the anti me when it comes to demos. Like literally the polar opposite. Like it in this, he does a lot of stuff. So in that way, it's like similar. But like every single thing he does is perfectly tightened down and like neat and clean and comes off like a machine. Right. Whereas you, it's like imagine a machine that like where parts are flying off of it at all points, and like just like oil and grease and gas are spraying everywhere. That's more like how I operate. Nice. Right, Stas? Yeah. yeah. Stas is like I know that too well. Anyway, um, 
Lately, I've been making flour tortillas uh, from the stew pack taco cookbook and have noticed some variation across other recipes I've seen. Some say to use cold water. Others say to use very hot water. Some say to knead the dough well and rest it a while to develop gluten. All those probably mean they mean relax. But anyway, well, right. Resting a short while is going to relax it. Resting a long time will let the gluten hydrate and develop whatever. Well, others recommend a very short knead and a short rest to keep the dough from getting tough. What's actually going on here? I know nothing will be as good as fresh masa tacos. Now, listen. I, too, and apparently so, uh, Alex, because I, I, I read it, you know, uh, we originally were saying that the only good tortilla is a corn tortilla. I have recanted this because the issue isn't that flour tortillas can't be delicious. They, they, they can be. Obviously, they are. The issue is that corn tortilla, which is like, to me, the base of the cuisine – was so completely disrespected and debased here in the United States that, and even apparently in Mexico in a lot of places, that uh, you almost needed to make a statement, and so you needed to go all in for corn tortillas, right? And let's be honest, corn tortillas are a lot harder to freaking make than a flour tortilla if you're going to start with raw corn. Just a lot harder. You know what I mean? Oh, really a lot harder. Uh, so... Therein, the fact that there's uh, you know a lot more of an art uh, and a lot more going into making a corn tortilla, and also such a huge quality difference between the crap that you buy and the um, and you know what you know what you can make, I think that is what led people like me, people like Alex, many people to say that the flour tortilla is garbage and that like you should only focus on the corn tortilla. Not true. Flour tortilla delicious, right? Uh, so you know, I wouldn't. I, I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna dial back a lot that I've said, and, and I've never. I've never, frankly, made a lot of flour tortillas. I don't, I'm not an expert in them because I have spent all my time on corn. But I'm here to tell you that I'm. I am now a believer that the flour tortilla is just as honorable to make as a corn tortilla, just not as difficult. Now, so what's going on in a flour tortilla? A flour tortilla is a mixture of uh, t- basically lard, flour, water, salt, right? And most of the recipes, and I took a glance, not in his book because, of course, we don't have a copy because, of course, we didn't go to the party like I already told you. Uh, and, like, you know, Stas and I aren't in the business of, like, shelling out – actually, you know, that's not true. We buy, we buy books. We should just buy their freaking book and yeah. support Alex and Jordana, whatever. Uh, you know, you put the lard, which is – you know, has a uh, – uh, is – what's the word I'm looking for? Has a lower melt point or it's an oilier, has a – less solid than butter, right, into the flour. And then stew pack adds uh, hot, hot or very warm water to it. Not hot enough to affect the actual flour. My guess is is that unlike a biscuit where you're looking to keep your uh, lard particles or your butter particles or your shortening particles separate so that you create flake layers in between um, uh, the pieces of flour. So if you're making like – because a, a biscuit dough, depending on the style that you make, but if you're doing a flaky style biscuit dough as opposed to the ones that are done with scoops, uh, you know, like the if you're doing like an old school flaky thing, you really want the uh, butter things to stay separate. So you, you put it into the flour. You work it into your hands until it resembles like a cornmeal with some larger pieces of butter. You do the minimum amount of um, – 
of work on the on the dough because you don't want it to get tough in any way, right? And then you bake them. The butter then melts. The water that's in the butter uh, expands. You get pockets. You get flaky things in between the thing. Everybody's happy. Everyone likes your biscuits. Go. By the way, Stas, I can't talk to her about it because she doesn't like biscuits. I need that like eh, sign again because I can't believe there's someone next to me who doesn't like biscuits. Joe, you like biscuits, right? Of course. Are you a fluffy or a flaky? Flaky. Flaky. Jack, fluffy or flaky? Sorry about that. Uh, I'm flaky. Flaky. Really? I yep. used to be exclusively flaky, and i that's how I make them. I have, in the past couple of years, come to respect the fluffy biscuit. Yeah? Yeah. I think they're different. They're different in the way that, like, a northern cornbread and a southern cornbread are different. All right. Anyway. So There's back, a caller on the, on the all right, let me line. Just finish, let me finish yeah, the tortilla. Let, you know. let me finish. Okay. So, uh, anyhow... Um, I think what the hot water is for there is to literally like help melt the uh, lard out because here what the lard is doing isn't forming little pockets to leaven to make something flaky because that's not what it's all about. And there's going to be enough water on the inside and it's going to be thin enough that you're going to get puffing just from the hot comal where you're cooking the tortilla. Here what the hot water is doing is causing the lard to run out and mix with the flour particles and prevent – this is my guess. I don't know. Prevent – the gluten from forming. And so uh, the hot water is actually, in this case, going to prevent uh, excess gluten development by causing the lard to be more evenly distributed in the uh, dough. This is a 100% guess and not based in any sort of actual knowledge. This is just me thinking off the top of my head. And with that, caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. Uh, it's Alex from Brooklyn. First, I wanted to give you a quick update. I had called in about doing an outdoor deep fryer, and you had recommended a wok instead. Uh-huh. And I ended up buying a propane wok burner, and it is awesome. Sweet. It's so, it's so perfect. So thank you for your help. And now my quandary is I do an annual pig roast in Prospect Park. Right. And I was wondering about doing a whole 75-pound pig low temp. Is okay. that a good strategy? Or do you have something else you recommend? Let me think here. So I'm trying to look in my head. I can picture a 200-pound pig, and I can picture a 20-pound pig. A 75-pound pig is what, like three feet long? Yeah, give or take. It fits in one of those big, uh, like, hunting coolers pretty nicely with a lot of ice. Got it. Oh, so you're going to do the cooler method, huh? Here's the issue with low-temping a whole pig. Uh, the, The loin is always going to be stringy. I mean, it's always going to have that, like, cook-too-long taste. You know what I mean? So you can, you can do it. It's, it. It won't be bad, but it's going to be best on, um, on the legs, obviously, are going to come out uh, better. The majority of the belly will be good, uh, except for, like, there's one or two muscles that don't have a lot of kind of uh, fat or connective tissue in there and that they're going to end up being dry. You know what might be an interesting technique <clears throat> that I've never tried? What if you – and I was talking off the top of my head here. What if you were to, uh, in place in the pig, rub curing salt into the loin section so that you almost mm-hmm. got some cure in the loin section and then – see, I've always wanted to do is like almost like take the, take the major muscles, like almost disassemble the pig <clears> – <throat> Cook it all perfectly, reassemble it, and then do the roast off to get the skin kind of cr- cr- crackly and awesome. But I've never mm-hmm. done it. You know what I've, my real dream is, is to do the uh, Colombian style where you take the whole skin off, like the lechona, where you take the whole skin off, turn it into a cape, then cook all the different pieces kind of separately, 
reassemble <laughs> with meat glue and then roast and crisp off the whole thing and then meanwhile re-therming the stuff on the inside. Like that would be the ultimate. That's kind of hard. That's kind of hardcore. It's a dream. That's very hardcore. It's a dream and someday I will do it. Uh, but it, look, it's going to work. It's just like there are always muscles in a pig that I don't think want to be cooked that long. That's all. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's the same reason why I have my issues with a whole pig barbecue. That I think that there are some cuts that are uh, you know, better uh, done um, other ways. It'll still be good. It's going to be good. I just – it's hard to get a whole animal cooked right all at the same time. But you know what? What I would do is test it a little bit. I would get like the relevant pieces in small bags before you do the cook. And then mm-hmm. – and that's what I did when I was working on the turkey recipe, when I was working on the uh, on the bionic turkey. I don't know if you – you know where I ripped all the bones out of the turkey and then reassembled the skeleton and did all that stuff. The way that we did the tests on that was uh, we – first thing we did is I went and bought uh, turkey breasts and uh, turkey legs and, <laughs> and just ran a bunch of side-by-sides and said, okay, this level of salt – uh, cooked for this many hours, how does it taste And then at this temperature? And then choosing uh, things that were within a degree or two of each other so I could get them to come together at the same time. And that's the way I developed the recipe. So if I was going to do a whole pig, I would do the same thing. I would choose some of the larger muscles. I would get like a little piece of the belly, a little piece of the – oh, you're not going to have that much of it – a little piece of the loin, a little piece of the of like parts of the leg. And I would just run some time temps to see kind of where it was harmonious and then see whether I could do something like Add more or less salt to the uh, to the parts that like might get stringier, or maybe cure them so that they stay um, kind of better over a long cook period. Because uh, if they're cured, they'll hold up to that long uh, ride better than not. Uh, so. I mean, that's what I would do, and then figure out how much of a crazy person you want to be in terms of disassembling and reassembling this pig before you do the final roast. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, and uh, an easy way. Um, you're gonna do. A, how are you gonna roast it? You're gonna get like a cajachina afterwards to do the finish, but those are too slow. You're gonna do like a big spit. What are you gonna do to do the finish? The finish on it. So I've done the cajachina the last three, four years, and I've just been really disappointed in the results, and I'm ready to up my game. Yeah. So that's why I was thinking low temp. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I may have to just go spit for the the whole thing. Remember, if you do low temp, it gives you the ability to go higher temp on the spit so that you can – or you could do – here's another thing. You could do low temp for insurance, and if you get – if you circulate – if you have something whose flavor is amazing, right, then you can circulate it in that almost as though you're kind of poaching it. I'd run some tests first and then pull it out, dry it out, and then just spit it at a higher temperature because it's already been cooked. And then you can – focus just on the skin. That might be a good way around it. The other way is to low temp it, pull it out when it's hot, let the skin get really, 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 really dry off of the low temp, uh-huh. really dry, and then just do the ladle fry over the whole thing. And so for that, you know, you need a big, super dangerous, but you know, you hold it above the oil and then you just have ladles and hot fat. You just go, 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 go. This is a huge, terrible ignition. Uh, you're putting yourself in danger of igniting it. However, it is delicious. To do things this way. And what about bags for low temping a big pig? So they make uh, vacuum bags uh, that are meant for putting comforters in, and they're not technically food grade, but I'm not going to say to use them. I've used them. You know what I mean? You have to, you know, be a little bit, a little bit careful. But that's why, if you had a liquid, you could just use oil. But that's a lot. It's a lot of freaking oil. And oil takes longer to cook, so you have to be. You, you can't do a test for time, 
where that you where your your time test is in water, and then assume that your time to cook is going to be the same when you're using oil. It's not, and you are going to need multiple circulators and blah 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 blah. But uh, you know, it's a lot of freaking oil. Or like I say, you could use uh, one of these uh, bags. But the issue with a pig is that the internal cavity of the pig is going to be. Um, it's going to be hollow and filled with air, and it's really going to ruin your um, your cook times. So, like, the best way to do it is to literally, uh, like, you can almost, f- but then if it's flat, it'll be hard to reassemble it. That's why, like, when I do the turkey, I literally pipe hot fat inside the animal so that we're cooking in both directions at once. And you got to remember that a 75-pound pig isn't that thick on the inside. And so, uh, you know, you can cook it a lot faster if you're piping the hot liquid into the cavity of the animal using two circulators, which is what I typically do when I'm working on larger larger creatures. And would an ANOVA work, or do I, am I going to need to get one of the polyscience ones? Um, I forget which one. One of the circulators I have has a problem pumping fat because of the viscosity. It auto-shuts down, but I don't remember which one... It 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 is. Um, the new poly science ones. I don't think Philip wants you to put oil through them. This is again like everything is about the testing. So like you don't want to show up with a pig in a circulator and then all of a sudden realize your technique's not, not going to work. But it's like super easy to just throw a circulator into like you know a small container of oil, fire it up. You're not going to ruin the circulator, right? It, at least I have not yet ruined a circulator. Let's let's rephrase that, uh, and uh, you know just see whether it runs. And one of them, and I forget which one it is, cuts out when you try to circulate oil with it. Doesn't kill it. Put it back in water, and it comes back to life. But uh, yeah. Gotcha. Well, this is very helpful. I'll certainly keep you updated. Yeah. Let us know how it works out. All right. Thanks, Dave. All right. Cool. Uh, okay. So. Uh, we got a second question on uh, on starch. Secondly, I've read uh, Harold McGee and Kenji's takes on how hot and how much water is sufficient to cook pasta. But is there a theoretical perfect temperature and potentially time for fresh uh, or dry pasta? If it exists, couldn't we achieve that in a circulator? Uh, many thanks, uh, Brooke. Um, I don't. Uh, look, I don't think that there's uh, like. Going to be an advantage to circulating uh, pasta, right? Here's why: in order for the pasta to cook properly, <clears throat> the water is going to have to be uh, fairly close to boiling, right? In order to swell the starch and to get it to all work. So, you're talking about a couple of degrees difference. So it's not like making dashi with kombu or something like this, where you know you're talking about oh, I'm going to cook it at like 60, 70 degrees Celsius. You're talking like you're going to be above 80 and change anyway. So I don't think the difference between 80 and change and 100 is really going to be um, like that much of a life changer in terms of the texture of, of the pasta. So I don't think you're going to really win. I think the only time that it's really critical to get the water levels 100% right is if you're going to can pasta and make soup. And we had a question on that someone asked, but I've never really never really gotten to it. That said, uh, you know, I would go back and read Harold's uh, article – from a million years ago in the New York Times on uh, pasta and, and different um, water levels. I just don't freaking worry about it. Do you worry about it much, Stas? No. I just no. don't worry about it. When you use larger quantities of water, I have – look, this is terrible. But like uh, remember uh, I use a lot of water. I have incredibly powerful gas burners and I don't pay for gas. I, right? My co-op pays for gas. And so this is a terrible statement to make but – I use excess gas. I'm not 
I'm not, uh, I don't conserve probably as much as I should the natural gas that I have. Um, I tend to use a lot of water, and the reason I tend to use a lot of water is I don't measure the salt levels that go into the water, and larger amount of water in the pot is much more stable with a finished salt level in the given amount of pasta than, um, than a smaller amount of water because it's, it just is. You know, because you have more water to work with. It's not for any temperature reasons, and it's not for rolling boil, and it's not for uh, it's not for the pasta sticking together. It's because I want the salt levels to come out relatively similar. Um, I know plenty of people like uh, um, Alex Naki at Ideas and Food. They pie, they they did the thing where they cold soaked pasta for a long time before they cooked it. Right? Uh, their theory being it takes less time to cook, takes less energy to cook if you soak it beforehand. I don't know if that's true or not, but they they say that, uh, and they say that it comes out more uh, even because it takes less time. Because water has intruded into the pasta, it takes less time for the pasta to cook through and hence it uh, less degradation to the outside of the pasta before the inside is done. Is it true? Is it not? Don't know. Uh, I have other uh, – I had an Italian guy tell me that I should uh, throw it in at the boil, bring it up to the boil, close it after you stir it to have it not stick and turn the water off. Why? He didn't want the pasta to roll around and get beaten up on certain pastas because he's saying that that's what causes the starch on the outside to get beaten up in the outside of the pasta to get mangled. Is it true? I don't know. What I'm saying is is that I think there are about 8,000 different ways to get pasta cooked uh, nicely, and I think it's more about pulling it at the right time than um, anything else. What do you think, Stas? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's about it here, Dave. Oh, man. All right. We have some yeah. more questions. We'll get to them next time on The Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.